In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at the Sirah Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, inshallah, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to sirahintensive.com to register or for more info. Inshallah, uh, continuing with our study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ, the prophetic biography, we'll pick up from where we left off, inshallah. Um, previously, we talked about the Prophet ﷺ's return from the journey and the expedition of Tabuk. And we talked about some of the experiences of the Prophet ﷺ on his return. For instance, previously we talked about, in the last session, we talked about the story of Ka'b bin Malik, عنه, his other two companions, the three that the Qur'an makes mention of, and also the other ten that the Qur'an also alludes to. Um, so we talked about their particular experiences and their story. What we're going to be talking about today is at the Prophet ﷺ, when he returned back from the journey of Tabuk, it was the month of Ramadan. It was the ninth year of Hijrah, the ninth year of the Prophet's residence in the city of Medina, and it was the month of Ramadan. And something really remarkable happened in this particular Ramadan. Uh, after shortly after the Prophet ﷺ returned. I'm going to take us a little bit back to two earlier moments in the life of the Prophet ﷺ to be able to understand exactly what transpired. So if we recall all the way back to the 11th year of Nubuwa, prophethood. So two years before the Prophet ﷺ, or actually even less than that, a year and a half before the Prophet ﷺ migrated from Makkah to Medina, the, the, the very... Tragic and traumatic, and in its own way, very remarkable event of the Prophet ﷺ going to Ta'if, that's when it occurred. And if we recall, what happened at that time was, the Prophet ﷺ, after realizing that the situation in Mecca is not getting any better, it's only continuously getting worse and worse, the Prophet ﷺ decided to go to Ta'if, try to take the message outside of Mecca, take it elsewhere, take it to some other people, and he attempted to go to Ta'if to basically preach to the people there and see if they would accept the message and they would uh, receive the message, that they would be uh, receptive. We know that that did not turn out very well. They ended up uh, rejecting the offer from the Prophet ﷺ to even allow him to preach the message to the people, the leadership did. The Prophet ﷺ, at their insistence that we do not want you here, we do not want you preaching the message, the Prophet ﷺ, tur- the Prophet ﷺ said, I will leave the city now and I will not you know, impose myself upon y'all. And so the Prophet ﷺ, along with his travel companions, Zayd bin Haritha, proceeded to leave peacefully and quietly. But that was not good enough for some of the troublemakers there. 
And what they decided to do at that time was, they decided to set after the Prophet some some of the very troublesome people in thought. If you know in every city there's a group of troublesome people, uh, maybe some criminals and things like that, they sent them after the Prophet and they said, you know, we want you to torment him, harass him, bother him, taunt him, and even physically inflict pain upon him uh, on his departure from our city so that he does not attempt to come back. Um, and very tragically and unfortunately, we've talked about in a lot of detail, they threw rocks at the Prophet Wasallam uh, for the duration of three miles from the outskirts, from the edge of the city of Ta'if to the place called Qarnul Manazil, also referred to by the locals at that time as Qarnul Tha'alib. For three miles straight, they threw rocks at him. And the Prophet ﷺ bled profusely, we've talked about this. His feet were completely torn up because they were aiming for his feet. And uh, finally when they relented and they left the Prophet ﷺ, and he sat down there and he was bleeding from his feet profusely and he had blood all over his clothes and, and his clothes were ruined and he, had, uh, he was bleeding so seriously from his feet. The Prophet ﷺ turned to Allah ﷻ and made that very beautiful, powerful dua that we know that many scholars refer to as dua ul musala'afin, the dua of the week and the oppressed and the tormented. Allahumma ashku ilayka du'afa quwwati wa qillata hilati wa hawani ala nas ya arhamar rahimin. O Allah, I complain to you of my own weakness, the lack of resources and the fact that I did not command enough respect in the eyes of these people, O most merciful of all those capable of showing any mercy. Ila man takiluni, ila ba'idin yatajahumuni, am ila aduwin malaktahu amri, that who will you hand me over to, to an enemy to have his way with me or to a merciless creature who will abuse me um, as long as you are not angry with me the worst thing in the world could happen to me but if you are not upset with me you are not angry with me then I don't care I don't mind it does not bother me it does not trouble me and he goes on to ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala um, that, oh Allah, uh, shower me uh, with your mercy and your forgiveness and your protection. And he basically says that, uh, oh Allah, you're the, the light of your face and your mercy is that, that which can dispel uh, all the worries of this world and all the difficulties of the life of the hereafter. So he turns to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this powerful moment. And that's when Jibreel alayhi salam comes to him, the angel deputed to the mountains comes to him. And he's given the offer that if you want, these mountains can collide and crush these people and obliterate these people, wipe them from existence, right? And the Prophet ﷺ so powerfully uh, at that moment, the Prophet ﷺ says, no, I don't want any harm to come to these people. I pray that Allah blesses them with guidance and if not them, then I hope that Allah will raise people from their progeny who will accept this message. And he makes this very beautiful, powerful dua. And it's as if almost the dua of the Prophet ﷺ is to some degree offer, uh, answered immediately where on the on the journey back, Adas, the Christian slave who works for a couple of the leaders of the Quraysh, he accepts Islam. A group of the jinn basically end up accepting, this, accepting the message in Islam on that same journey back and the Prophet ﷺ returns home. Um, and even not returning home, he's faced with more adversity where the rumor has spread in Mecca, the, 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 the opposition has spread this pop propaganda against the Prophet ﷺ that he went there to Ta'if to recruit an army and come back and then invade Mecca.
And so then the Prophet ﷺ goes to the cave of Hira. And he actually has to stay there for a few days. Until finally, uh, Mutim bin Adi offers the Prophet ﷺ protection. And then the Prophet ﷺ is able to come back to the city of Mecca. And he's able to come back home. So that was his first interaction with the people of Ta'if in an official capacity. As a messenger and a Prophet of Allah. And it was not a very good one. They rejected him. They did not allow him to preach. And then furthermore, they threw rocks at him and they physically uh, abused him. And it's a very tragic relationship from the very get-go, from the very start. The second interaction the Prophet ﷺ has with them in an official capacity is when the Prophet ﷺ arrives in Mecca for Fatshu Mecca, the opening of Mecca, the conquest of Mecca. Shortly after they arrive there, about 20 days later, they hear about the fact that some of the Bedouin tribes that live between Mecca and Ta'if, they are amassing together and coming together and building an army to launch an attack against the Muslims. The Prophet ﷺ goes out there to face them off and to deal with them. And this is known as the Battle of Hunain. The Battle of Hunain. That battle basically concludes with the Muslims achieving victory. It has a very fascinating story behind it that we talked about in quite a bit of detail. Part of that uh, battle uh, on the day of Hunayn was, it was the tribes of Hawazin, these Bedouin tribes, but also the people of Ta'if, who were known by the name of Banu Thaqif. Like Quraysh was, uh, the Mecca was the home of Quraysh, Ta'if was the home of the tribe of Thaqif, Banu Thaqif. And so Banu Thaqif, the people of Ta'if, had come and joined Hawazin to fight against the Muslims in Hunayn. When the Muslims achieved victory, Hawazin surrendered, but the people of Ta'if, the people of Thaqif, they ran back to Ta'if, they retreated to Ta'if, and they had a huge wall and a huge fortress in Ta'if. And they went inside that fortress and they locked themselves up and closed the gates. And the Muslims went and laid siege to the, to the fortress of Ta'if for about a week. But the fortress, the walls were so huge and the fortress was so strong, it was impenetrable. Secondly, they basically sent word saying that we have prepared this place for a very long time. We have entire farms inside of here. We have entire like flocks of animals that live inside of here. We can live in here forever. You know, you, you won't be able to force us out. So we're here. You can stay at, camped out outside of the fortress for as long as you'd like. When the Prophet ﷺ saw this situation, he said, let's go back to Mecca. Leave them. Some of the Sahaba were concerned. What, we're just going to leave them? This is an enemy. What if they come in? The, the Prophet ﷺ said, leave them. I put my faith in Allah. And in fact, again, the Prophet ﷺ reiterated his faith and reiterated the fact that he had such conviction in his dua. Always believe that God will answer your duas. Right? So the Prophet ﷺ said, I still retain hope that these people will come around. They, and then in fact the Prophet ﷺ said, next time we will not come to them, they will come to us. They will come to us. I have conviction, I'm fully convinced of the fact that they will come to us. So this is where we're picking up from. So the Prophet ﷺ comes back from this journey of Tabuk, arrives back, it's the ninth year of Hijrah, it's a month of Ramadan, and he arrives back in Medina. Shortly after the Prophet ﷺ arrives in Medina, what ends up happening? The people of Ta'if arrive in Medina. To meet with the Prophet ﷺ. And there's a very fascinating story about what happened um, with them as well. What happened with them is that when the Prophet ﷺ, um, 
was leaving for Tabuk, um, one of the leaders, one of the leaders of the people of Ta'if, one of the leaders of Banu Thaqif, his name was Urwa bin Mas'ud. Urwa bin Mas'ud, a Thaqafi. He was one of the leaders, and he was in fact um, one of the younger leaders of the people of Ta'if. He was like a young superstar. He was their young and up-and-coming leader. He was like, uh, in, in Ta'if they had an individual by the name of Mas'ud al-Thaqafi. He was kind of like their Abu Jahl. He was his son. So just like Abu Jahl's son became Muslim, he also became Muslim. And in fact, he was married to a woman from Quraysh. So he had some relationships with the Prophet ﷺ as well. He left Ta'if and came to Medina. He was coming towards Medina to meet the Prophet ﷺ and to accept Islam. He ended up meeting the Prophet ﷺ on the journey. The Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba, they had left Medina. He found out that they had left Medina. He went and he met with the Prophet ﷺ. He accepted Islam. And then he asked the Prophet ﷺ, I want to go back to my people and convince them to accept Islam. I want to go back to my people and convince them to accept Islam. The Prophet ﷺ warned him, إِنَّهُمْ قَاتِلُوكَ They will kill you. Your people are a very tough people. They're very rough. They're a bit stubborn. And they will kill you if they don't like what you're saying. The Prophet, he insisted, and so finally the Prophet ﷺ, he insisted by even saying, أَنَا حَبُّ إِلَيْهِمْ مِنْ أَبْكَارِهِمْ That they love me more than they love their own children. They love me more than they love their own young people. Like I'm very, very beloved to them. And so the Prophet ﷺ, he confirmed the fact, he said, وَكَانَ كَذَلِكَ وَكَانَ فِيهِمْ كَذَلِكَ مُحَبَّبًا مُطَاعًا they really did used to love him a lot and people would listen to him. He was an up-and-coming superstar in their community. So the Prophet ﷺ said, okay, fine, I've warned you. But the Prophet ﷺ said, That they are very stubborn people. And so nevertheless, he went back to his people. He gathered them all together and he presented to them that I am a Muslim and I call you to Islam and this is why I call you to Islam. This is why it makes sense. Please listen to me. He, he, you know, he, he reasoned with them. The narration says that رَمَوْهُ بِالنَّبْلِ مِنْ كُلِّ وَجْهٍ فَأَصَابَهُ سَهْمٌ فَقَتَلَهُ In that very gathering when he proclaimed his own Islam and called them to accept Islam, in that very gathering people pulled out their arrows and started shooting arrows at him. And he tried to duck, but one of the arrows caught him and he ended up dying from that. And while he was dying, while he was dying, he was on the ground there bleeding out. Someone asked him, Wahb ibn Jabir, um, who was also a Muslim, but he was like a, a covert Muslim. He was keeping his Islam hidden. He was from the people of Ta'if. He asked Urwa while he was there on the ground bleeding out, and he went to him. He said, Ma tarafi damika? Do you think this was all worth it? Was it worth it for you to give up your life? And he said, "Karamatun akramani Allahu biha, shahadatan saqahallahu ilayya." He says that this is a great honor that God has given me, and Allah allowed me to die as a martyr, even though I'm not in the battlefield. And then he said, "Falaysa fiya illa ma fi shuhada illadina qutilu ma arasulai sallallahu qabla an yartahila ankum fatfinuni maahum." He said, "My only request to you is when the Muslims had come and laid siege." to the city of Ta'if, the fortress of Ta'if. Remember a couple of years ago, uh, when, or a year ago, when they had laid siege to the fortress of Ta'if, they were shooting arrows down from the fortress, 
And some Muslims were struck by arrows and they died. And so the Prophet ﷺ had buried them outside the fortress of Taif. There was an area where the Prophet ﷺ had buried the Muslims who were shot down by arrows from the fortress and they died there. The Shuhada of Taif. He said, my only request to you is go and bury me there with my Muslim brothers. Bury me there. And so he actually was buried there. And when the Prophet ﷺ was informed of what happened with Urwa, the Prophet ﷺ said something very beautiful. He said, "Inna mathalahu fi qawmihi kamathali sahibi Yasin fi qawmihi." That he is like the man from Surah Yasin. He is like the man from Surah Yasin. وَجَاءَ رَجُلٌ مِنْ أَقْصَى الْمَدِينَةِ يَسْعَى قَالَ يَا قَوْمِ تَبِعُ الْمُرْسَلِينَ اتَّبِعُوا مَا لَا يَسْلِكُمْ أَجْرًا وَهُمْ مُهْتَدُونَ وَمَا لِيَ لَا أَعْبُدُ الَّذِي فَطَرَنِي وَإِلَيْهِ تُرْجَعُونَ That the man who basically came from the outskirts of town to support the messengers who were preaching to the people. And he said, listen to these people, follow these people. And he reasoned with them and he called them and he pleaded to them. But the, but the surah tells us that they killed him. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala entered him to paradise and there he said that I wish my people could know I wish my people could know how my Lord forgave me and how much honor my Lord bestowed upon me and my Lord granted me such honor and such nobility in the hereafter so the Prophet said Urwa is like the man of Yasin and but what ended up happening was and you know, there, there's so many powerful lessons in this particular story of the people of Ta'if coming and accepting Islam. First of all, like we talked about, this is why, you know, mercy is the most powerful force in this world. Mercy is the most powerful force on earth. We oftentimes as human beings are creatures of immediate uh, gratification. We are creatures that are very short-sighted. So a lot of times force, force and strength and, and, and uh, violence and oppression and exertion of our force over other people is something that's very intoxicating. It's very, we become enamored with it. We see it and, and we, we, become, we become very enticed by it because it leads to some type of immediate gratification, instant gratification. You, I can get what I want if I just exert my force on you. But mercy is the most powerful force because that, that exertion of force and even violence is not something that's sustainable. And you haven't really won somebody over for the time being because the person maybe does not have a proper response or cannot retaliate to you, they're giving in. But from that point on forward, that person is basically plotting their response and their retaliation. But mercy is a very powerful force. Like all the uh, mentions of it in the Quran, where it talks about how powerful God's mercy is. And the Hadith Qudsi, where the Prophet, where the Prophet tells us that God declared that my mercy supersedes غلبت غضبي. It overcomes my anger and my wrath. Mercy is something very powerful and we see the power of the mercy of the Prophet That the Prophet practiced that mercy by not praying against those people, by not continuing the siege and trying to dominate those people. And we see them ultimately coming back. We see the power of dua. Right, a lot of times when somebody comes to you with a situation, a circumstance, and you, you tell them, they're like, what should I do? And you tell them, make dua. Pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that Allah alleviates your situation. People a lot of times feel like that is a canned response. 
People feel like that's not something concrete. People feel like that's a cop-out. You're just saying that because you don't have a real answer to give me. So just go do dua. Pray to Allah. Allah will make it better. But dua is the most powerful thing. Because you're accessing, you're reaching out to, you're pleading for, you're seeking the help of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And there's no greater force than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so we see the dua of the Prophet ﷺ praying for the guidance of the people of life. And look what it does. It ultimately shows its fruit. Sooner rather, you know, eventually. Maybe it doesn't happen today or tomorrow. But that's our problem. That we are so short-sighted. That we don't have any type of perspective. But that's why we have to put our faith and trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And know that Allah will always, in Allah la yukhliful mi'ad, Allah will always deliver on His promises. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, you pray to me and I will answer you. And we see the dua of the Prophet ﷺ coming true, even if it be a decade later. Alright? And the third lesson here particularly is the fact that no sacrifice is in vain. No sacrifice is in vain. In Allah la yudi'u ajr al-muhsinin. God never wastes the reward and the effort of those who strive for excellence. If you made a worthwhile, a worthy, noble, sincere sacrifice, Allah will reward it. Urwa bin Mas'ud, he's there preaching to his people and his people murder him. They murder him. In cold blood, in broad daylight, they murder him publicly. They lynch him. But he recognizes the fact that this sacrifice is not in vain. And how, do we, how does Allah teach us that lesson? Well, what happened was after he was killed, uh, a couple of, you know, while the Prophet ﷺ was away at the journey of Tabuk during that time, during those couple of months, the people of Ta'if, it caused like a lot of soul searching amongst them. Because this was their leader, the son of their leader. This was their superstar. And we just murdered him like that in broad daylight? Just shot him down. And it caused a lot of soul searching amongst the people. And people started getting together. The narration mentions, Ibn Ishaq mentions the narration, that they started consulting with one another. That, did we do the right thing? Was what he, saying, what he was saying, didn't it make a lot of sense? And they finally kept on consulting amongst them, talking amongst them. Eventually they developed a consensus that we need to go and meet with the Prophet ﷺ. This is at least worth a conversation. That's all he was asking us to do. So they finally gathered together and they choose a group amongst them. Ibn Ishaq, uh, or sorry, Musa bin Uqba mentions that it was, you know, about a dozen people. They choose a dozen of their leaders. And then they sent them out to go and send this delegation to Medina to go and meet with the Prophet ﷺ. And they are basically given the permission from the people that go there, accept Islam, give the oath of allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ, and talk to him. And they had certain terms that they wanted to negotiate that we're going to talk about, that are very profound. The narration mentions that when they got near to Medina, they stopped at a place where there was a bit of a canal, there was some water there. So they stopped for a little bit of a break to freshen up. Mughira bin Shu'bah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who was a companion of the Prophet ﷺ, he was out there basically grazing some of the uh, you know, camels of sadaqah. He was out there grazing those camels. When he saw them, he went to he ran into the city of Medina to tell the Prophet ﷺ that the people from Ta'if are coming and they're not coming like in the form of an army, it's a delegation. 
So he became very excited. Looks like they're coming to accept Islam. He met Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu before he could find the Prophet sallallahu And he told Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu that, you know, the people of Ta'if have come to accept Islam. Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu said, okay, we need to handle this properly. First of all, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu said, allow me to inform the Prophet sallallahu Because Mughira was like so excited, he said that you might kind of create a sense of panic. He said, let me inform the Prophet ﷺ. Secondly, he said that you need to then go back and escort them in so nobody feels like there's some invading, like, you know, this is like a raid coming upon the city of Medina. You need to escort them because everyone recognizes you, everyone knows you here. And number two, number three, this is very fascinating. He says, teach them a little bit of the etiquette of how to speak to the Prophet ﷺ. So this you kind of see as well. The, and, and there's a very interesting kind of uh, juxtaposition here. The Prophet ﷺ was a very, very, you know, uh, the Prophet ﷺ was a very accessible person. The Prophet ﷺ was very approachable. He did not have like this air of like royalty and monarchy to him. Speaking to the Prophet ﷺ was very easy. Approaching him was very simple. Little children would walk up to him. We know all the stories about little children coming and just crawling into his lap. We know little kids pulling him around, you know, by his finger and asking him to do things for them. Anyone could talk to the Prophet ﷺ. Anyone could say salam to him. Anyone could, you know, approach him. But we also see on the flip side now, because the community is developing, that the, while the Prophet ﷺ was very approachable, some of the senior companions, radiallahu ta'ala anhum, they made it their particular job to make sure that people knew how to speak to the Prophet ﷺ. And so we kind of see this very interesting dynamic. Nevertheless, Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu goes and you know, informs the Prophet ﷺ. And so the Prophet ﷺ, um, you know, can prepare. And Mughira goes to escort them in and kind of instruct them on the proper etiquette. Now, the next lesson is that the Prophet ﷺ, as soon as Abu Bakr tells him that the people of Ta'if are here to accept Islam, the Prophet ﷺ immediately instructs someone to pitch a tent in the back of the masjid. Like the very first concern of the Prophet ﷺ is hospitality. And this is another. The Prophet they haven't accepted Islam yet. He doesn't know what they're going to talk about. But all the Prophet knows is that they are my guests. They have come to my house, my city, my home, my masjid. They are my guests. And the Prophet's mind immediately goes to hospitality. The Prophet had a tent put up for them in the masjid so that they would have a place to stay. Now, they end up coming and they meet with the Prophet. When they sit down to talk to the Prophet ﷺ, this is a very fascinating thing that occurs here in this particular conversation. They have a few things that they want to talk about. You almost can say they had a couple of terms that they wanted to discuss about becoming Muslim. The first thing that they wanted to talk about was that أَنْ يَدَعَلَهُمُ الطَّاغِيَ وَهِيَ اللَّاتِ ثَلَاثَ سِنِينَ These people used to worship idols. They were like the Quraysh in Mecca. The Quraysh in Mecca used to worship like the many, many idols, but the chief and the key amongst them was like Uzza. Well, one of the other major idols of the Arabs was Allat. That's why you, Allat wal Uzza, right? The, the, the idol of Allat was actually kept in Ta'if. The temple of Allat existed in Ta'if. 
So they came to the Prophet and they said, we are, on behalf of our, all our people, we are here to accept Islam, pledge the allegiance of Thaqif and Ta'if to the Prophet and to Islam, and when we go back, all the rest of our people will accept Islam. However, we've lived by shirk for so long. This idol is more than just simply the object of our worship. It's like a central part of our culture and our people and our identity. So we would like for you to grant us a grace period of three years where this idol can remain, the temple can remain. We won't worship, but we'd like for it to remain. فَمَا بَرِحُوا يَسْأَلُونَهُ سَنَةً سَنَةً وَيَعْبَى عَلَيْهِمْ حَتَّى سَأَلُوهُ شَهْرًا وَاحِدًا بَعْدَ مَقْدَلِهِمْ لِيَتَأَلَّفُوا سُفَهَاءَهُمْ فَأَبَى عَلَيْهِمْ أَنْ يَدَعَاهَا شَيْئًا مُسَمًّا إِلَّا أَنْ يَبَعَثَ مَعَهُمْ أَبَى سُفْيَانِ بْنَ حَرْبْ وَالْمُغِيرَ لِيَهْدِمَاهَا They kept on saying, can we keep the idol for three years? The Prophet said, no. He said, okay, two years? He said, no. He said, one year? He said, no. Six months? No. Three months? No. One month? No. Finally, the Prophet said, I will not, I cannot. And this is something very powerful. The Prophet ﷺ, and we're going to read further about how accommodating the Prophet ﷺ was. Remember the famous statement of the Prophet ﷺ to Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha at the time of Fatih Makkah when he looked at the Kaaba and the, he said that, you know, because we remember from the renovation of the Kaaba, the Hatim, the Hijr Ismail, the half circle, it used to be included within the construction of the Kaaba, but at the time of the renovation, five years before Nabuwa, when the Prophet was 35, they did not have enough funds to basically include it, so they constructed the square as we see it, and they just put like a little border around that half circle, kind of like it is today. And the Prophet said, لَوْلَا حَدِيثُ عَهْدِ قَوْمِكِ بِالْإِسْلَامِ That had it not been for how new your people are to the faith and to the religion, I would have returned the Kaaba back to its original construction. The Prophet was so accommodating of people to slowly kind of work their way into Islam. Very accommodating, extremely. All right? However, shirk and associating partners to God and, and, and you know, um, any type of a discrepancy in God's right to be worshipped was something that's intolerable. تَكَادُ السَّمَاوَاتُ يَتَفَطَّرْنَ مِنْهُ وَتَنْشَقُ الْأَرْضُ وَتَخِرُ الْجِبَالُ هَدَّى لِلرَّحْمَنِ Right? إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ أَنْ يُشْرَكَ بِهِ It's the unforgivable sin. That's a thing that can't be tolerated. So it's as if the Prophet ﷺ, and this is a little bit of, you know, this is very humbling for a lot of us, where the Prophet ﷺ said, that's not even my decision to make. I cannot, even if I don't want to, but even if I did want to, I could not give you any concession or license here. This is God's right. This is God's decree. This is God's decision. And so no, all I cannot give you any concession of how long this idol can continue. What I will tell you is that when you return back home, two people will come with you. Abu Sufyan will come with you because he was a leader of the Meccans and the Quraysh. So there would be a little bit of a, you know, a, little bit of a connection and a sense of respect. And Mughira bin Shu'aba will come. He was a bit of an enforcer of the Prophet He was a warrior. So these two will come with you and they will basically tear down Lat and its temple. That's what will happen. Then they went on to continue to talk to the Prophet They said, وَسَأَلُوهُ مَعَ ذَلِكَ أَلَّا يُصَلُّوا وَأَلَّا يَكْسِرُوا أَصْنَامَهُمْ بِأَيْدِيهِمْ The next thing they asked was, we also want to stipulate that we're not going to pray. Your Islam is fine, 
whatever makes sense. But we're not sure if we want to pray. And we understand that the idol needs to come down. But we would like to ask that we not be made to tear down the idol with our own hands. That, we, that you send somebody. So that's what the Prophet ﷺ said. That, The Prophet ﷺ said, fine, I won't make you tear down the idol yourself. I'll send Abu Sufyan, I'll send Mughira, and they'll tear down the idol. But as for prayer, There's no, there's no, there's no good in a religion that does not have worship and prayer in it. How are you going to be Muslim and you don't pray? Think about that. That doesn't make any sense. In fact, some of the other narrations are also mentioned that they discussed some other terms with the Prophet ﷺ. The next thing that they asked about was, um, and in fact, uh, Imam Ahmad in his narration mentions, فَأَنزَلَهُمُ الْمَسْجِدَ لِيَكُونَ أَرَقَ لِقُلُوبِهِمْ That the Prophet ﷺ made them stay in the masjid to let them know that, you know, to, to basically win them over, to show them generosity. And the next term that they stipulated was Allah yuhsharu wala yu'sharu wala yujabu wala yusta'mal alayhim ghayruhum they had four conditions four terms they wanted to discuss number one is that we will not be made to go and report to some zakat office zakat collector but rather we will give it okay we will give it um, whatever needs to be given, whatever needs to be done, we'll take care of it. But don't make us go and register and go and sign up somewhere. Number two, Allah yu'asharu, do not impose any type of tax, taxation upon us. Number three, yujabu, and uh, scholars explain what the meaning of that is, that they were basically talking about prayer. This was talking about prayer, that we don't want a, a prayer to be enforced. We don't want to pray. And number four, that you do not appoint a non-Ta'if person as the governor of Ta'if, the mayor of Ta'if. Whoever you appoint to govern the area needs to be from amongst us. The Prophet ﷺ said, لَكُمْ أَلَّا تُحْشَرُوا وَلَا تُعْشَرُوا He says, fine, you don't have to go and register anywhere. Number one. Number two, I will not impose a tax upon you. Just pay your zakat annually, and nobody will even come to collect your zakat, you just give your zakat. I'm going to trust you to pay your zakat. Right? And... And I will not appoint a non-ta'if person to be your governor, to be your leader. And the man that the Prophet ﷺ appointed was Uthman ibn Abil As, a thaqafi. Uthman ibn Abil As, he was from Ta'if as well, and I'll talk more about why he chose him. But then the Prophet ﷺ said, There's no good in a religion in which you don't pray. And now, there's another very fascinating conversation about this, and that is Abu Dawood, Imam Abu Dawood mentions this in his book, that Wahab, the same man who initially was like a covert Muslim amongst them, he narrates that, I asked Jabir, an sha'ni thaqifin idh bayat. later on I asked Jabir, Jabir was a Medinan Muslim, because Wahab said, I was not amongst the delegation who went to Medina to talk to the Prophet Later on, when I got to visit Medina, I met Jabir radiallahu ta'ala anhu, a young man of Medina, a young Muslim, Ansari. I asked him, what was it like when my delegation, the people of Thaqif, when our delegation came there, what happened? So he told him, اشترط على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم ألا صدقت عليها ولا جهادا. They, dis- they wanted to discuss terms with the Prophet and one of the terms they wanted to discuss is, we will not pay 
charity, we will not give the zakat, nor should we be obligated to go and fight in jihad. The Prophet explained to them that, look, this is a command of Allah, can't do that, etc. He like explained it to them. He didn't give them like an ultimatum, he explained it to them. But after they left the gathering, the Prophet said something very fascinating, Jabir says. He says, the Prophet said, The Prophet said, don't worry. Because the Sahaba were kind of riled up. They're crazy people. Come to town. We're not paying. We're not praying. We're not paying zakat. We're not going to fight in jihad. We're not going to do this. We're not going to do that. We're not going to do this. And the Prophet ﷺ was like, you know, when you hear the tone, the Prophet ﷺ was talking to them. La khayra fi din and la salata fihi. How are you going to be Muslim and not pray? And the Sahaba were kind of like left scratching their head a little bit, like, why not tell them? Hey, no salah. All right, why don't you get lost? We'll show up with an army in a couple of weeks, and then we'll see what's up. Why don't you just basically say that? Why don't you just give them the ultimatum? Pray or else. But the Prophet is there talking to them very nicely. When they left the gathering, the Prophet said, Everybody relax and calm down. Sayyidina. They will pay their zakat. Watch. And they will fight for the sake of Islam. Ida Aslamu once they become Muslim. Let them become Muslim. Let this iman settle into their hearts. Let it take root within their heart. Let it settle into their hearts. And then watch. They'll fall in line in terms of everything. And that's exactly what ended up happening. So we see something really remarkable and profound here. Two things I wanted to highlight here is number one, the significance and the importance of salah. When they said, we don't want to go and uh, zakat collector to come and like collect the zakat from us. It's humiliating to us. And in fact, in one place they even said, uh, they even commented by, We'll pay our zakat, but this is humiliating. This is humiliating. Right? So, they said that we don't want the zakat collector to come around and knock our door and collect zakat from us. It's humiliating. We don't want to be taxed and to made to feel like we're foreigners in our own homes. We don't want um, some other guy from some other city to all of a sudden come upon us and then be our governor and have to report back to him. We don't want this. We don't want that. We don't want this. And the Prophet said, fine, a zakat collector will not come to your town. I'll expect you to pay your zakat to your poor. Take care of your poor. The Prophet said, we're not going to tax you. Fine. Fine. We'll appoint a person from your own tribe to be your leader. Happy? But the one thing the Prophet ﷺ did kind of talk to them about, kind of he did push back on was salah, was the prayer. The thing he pushed back on was the prayer. Look guys, you got to pray. You got to pray. And that teaches us the central importance and significance of the prayer in the salah. It is our opportunity every single day to talk to Allah. Five times a day. To connect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It is our opportunity to actually physically, uh, you know, demonstrate our belief. La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. That we pray to Allah, and we pray to Allah in the way the Prophet ﷺ taught us to pray. Salah is the physical embodiment, it is the physical demonstration of La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. You pray because Allah told you to pray, and you pray like the Prophet ﷺ taught you to pray. So it's very powerful. And that's the thing the Prophet pushed back on. And that's why the Prophet taught us that kind of the demarcating line, the differentiation between Islam and Kufr is as-salah. 
Right? So it's very important. That's the first lesson. And we all need to internalize that. And generally speaking, somebody listening to this might be thinking like as a Muslim, well, duh. I know salah, I have to pray. I know it's important. But at the same time, it's not enough for us to just know, but we, at some point, we got to grow to the point where we start doing. We all know. But it's time to do. We have to actually establish our prayer. And we have to make an effort to do that. We have to make it a priority. We have to schedule it accordingly. Think about anything important in your life, how it ends up becoming a reality. How does it happen? Whether it be your job or whether it be school or whether it be an appointment or whether it be, you know, a personal engagement. Like, think about it. A personal commitment. It happens when you put work into it. You schedule it. You have notifications. You have reminders. You work around it. You schedule things around it. That's necessary. So that's what we have to implement. That level of practicality and significance to our prayer. Number two, just very briefly, I also wanted to touch on the idea that there is a lot of conversation today about, well, prayer seems like a very kind of like mundane activity. It seems like a very just kind of mundane spiritual thing to do. I don't get the point of it. Really, what difference does it make? Whether I stand up and make these physical postures or I don't. Really? Is that it? Is that my faith? Does that determine my faith? Isn't it something more? Isn't it something more profound? More deep? More philosophical? You're telling me if I just stand up and make these postures and do these, you know, fulfill this ritual that that somehow that's my, my, my faith? We have to understand the meaning of what, it, what, what faith is. It's submission. It's believing in Allah. It's submitting to Allah. It's obeying Allah. So yes, absolutely. If that's what Allah has asked us to do, that demonstrates that obedience to God. And a condition of prayer is not what I think of it or I don't think of it. What I feel from it or I don't feel from it. Whether I philosophically get it or I don't get it. That's arrogance. But I have to pray because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded me to pray. And then the second thing I wanted to talk about here is the, subhanAllah, the profound lesson from the Prophet ﷺ that he's teaching us. A lot of times we get very caught up in what people are, are willing to do or not willing to do, but we don't understand the sequence of things, the hierarchy of things, the priority of things, the awlawiyah of things, right? So we have to understand our first and foremost objective is to connect people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And all the little, you know, all the different requirements and all the different um, elements of the deen and the religion, they'll all fall into place eventually, but first allow people to experience a relationship with Allah. Allow them to connect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we get so caught up sometimes in the minutia of, you know, the, 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 the practice of the religion that we forget about the fact that the very first part of someone's journey is to just realize their relationship with Allah. And this applies to Muslim and non-Muslim, both. Within our own community, there's a, num- there's a huge segment, the vast overwhelming majority of our community, that's very disconnected from the deen. And a lot of times they're very intimidated because at the very, it's like we're standing at the door saying, stop, now before you come in here, I'm going to need you to do these 27 things. I'm going to need you to figure these 27 things out and then we can have a conversation. Instead of just letting them first experience a connection and a relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Look how beautifully the Prophet said, Let them become Muslim, then they'll pay their zakat. Then they'll fight when it's time to fight. But would you let them become Muslim first? 
right? And then particularly when it comes to interacting with non-Muslims who might be curious about the deen, somebody who's willing to accept Islam, we really, really have to check ourselves and we have to be very mindful of the fact that we invite people to the deen of Allah in the way of the messenger of Allah. Not what I want, not what I think. They're not joining my club or my cult. But they are joining the deen of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They are embracing the deen of Allah in the way of the messenger of Allah. And that's very, very important and profound. The next thing I wanted to talk about here, and then we'll wrap up with this inshallah, is the leader. Remember the Prophet ﷺ said, fine, you get to have a leader from amongst your own people. And that was, I told you, Uthman bin Abil As. How did the Prophet ﷺ decide that he should be the leader? So there's something very interesting. Uthman bin Abil As was actually a young man. He was not very elderly, he was not very senior, he was a younger person. So by the virtue of the fact that the Prophet ﷺ appointed him as a leader, we see that the Prophet ﷺ empowered young leadership. He empowered young people in the community. But not only that, Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu came to the Prophet ﷺ. Ibn Ishaq mentions this. Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu ta'ala anhu came to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, Ya Rasulullah, inni ra'aytu hadha al-ghulam min ahrasihim ala tafaqhuhi fil islami wa ta'allum al-Qur'an. He said, oh messenger of Allah, I've been keeping an eye on that young man right there. That young man right there, I, seen, I have seen him while they've been here, that he is the most motivated amongst them to understand Islam and to learn the Qur'an. And in fact, there's a narration where he comes to the Prophet and he says, Alimni al-Qur'an ya Rasulullah. Teach me the Qur'an, O messenger of Allah. So... And another narration mentions that Uthman bin Abil As, the whole time that they were there in Medina, he used to try to find the Prophet ﷺ anytime he could find him. He would ask him questions and learn from him. And he would learn the Quran from the Prophet. ﷺ. But sometimes, if the Prophet ﷺ was taking a nap or the Sahaba told him he's gone home, he's not here anymore. Then he would go to Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala and he would say, teach me the Qur'an. When he couldn't find Abu Bakr, he'd go to Umar bin al-Khattab or Uthman bin Affan or Ali bin Abi Talib. He'd just bouncing around between people, teach me the Qur'an, teach me the Qur'an, teach me Islam, teach me the Qur'an. فَلَمْ يَزَلْ دَعْبَهُ حَتَّى فَقُهَا فِي الْإِسْلَامِ وَأَحَبَّهُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ صَلَى حُبًّا شَدِيدًا and he kept on wanting to learn his religion until he developed a very sound understanding of the religion and the Prophet loved this young man very, very much. And so that was the reason why the Prophet ﷺ appointed him as a leader. It was because he was keen on understanding his religion. So we see that the community of the Prophet ﷺ was a meritocracy. It was based off of merit. It didn't matter you know, how necessarily how old you were. It didn't matter how, you know, what your lineage was or how much money you had or what your background was or how much influence you had or what your connections were. It was about you and your quality, your, your, your own character and your caliber as a person and what your quality was. And then the last and the final thing was that the Prophet ﷺ, when he was sending them back home, Uthman bin Abil As, he went to the Prophet ﷺ and he said, give me some advice before I go back to the community. Give me some advice. And the key piece of advice the Prophet ﷺ gave him was he said, Umma qawmaka wa idha amamta qawman fa'akhiffa bihim as-salah. Lead your people in prayer, but when you lead them in prayer, be light, be moderate, be understanding, take it easy on them. 
Take it easy on them. فَإِنَّهُ يَقُومُ فِيهَا الصَّغِيرُ وَالْكَبِيرُ وَالضَّعِيفُ وَالْمَرِيدُ وَذُو الْحَاجَةِ There's lots of people who come to pray. There's young people, elderly people, weak people, ill people who are sick, and people who have somewhere else to be. They have needs. They have to be somewhere else. So be very reasonable in how you lead the prayer. And be moderate in terms of how you lead the prayer. And again, you see the compassion of the Prophet Community is about compassion. You saw them when they were accepting Islam, the Prophet was compassionate. You saw the Prophet making dua for the people of Ta'if. When they come to accept Islam, he's compassionate. When he's appointing a leader, he's telling him to be compassionate. Community is about compassion. This is from the sunnah of the Prophet from the seed of the Prophet directly. Directly from the seed of the Prophet And... The, the, the other thing that Uthman bin Abdul As mentions that when he went to go uh, meet with the Prophet ﷺ, he told the Prophet ﷺ that I have some pain. This is, you know, because a lot of the beautiful du'as we learn from the Prophet ﷺ. So he said that I'm, I'm experiencing some pain in my chest. And the Prophet ﷺ taught him a du'a. Um, and this dua is mentioned in Sahih Imam Muslim, in the Muattaf Malik, and many, many hadith books. That he, the Prophet ﷺ taught him, he placed his hand on his chest and he said, Whenever you feel any pain, place your hand wherever you feel the pain. Say, Bismillah three times. وَقُلْ سَبْعًا مَرَّاتٍ And then seven times recite the following dua. أَعُوذُ بِعِزَّةِ اللَّهِ وَقُدْرَتِهِ مِنْ شَرِّ مَا أَجِدُ وَأُحَاذِرُ That I take refuge with the power and the majesty of God um, from the evil of what I feel and what I am experiencing at this moment and what I fear could occur. And he said that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala remove the pain from you. Um, and the narration goes on to mention that the Prophet when they went to the city of Ta'if, when they got back home. Now, of course, the Prophet ﷺ had said, like we had talked about, Mughira bin Shu'ba, and he had sent um, Abu Sufyan to destroy the temple of the idol that they were worshipping. They destroyed the idol, and they started to tear down the temple. But the people started to freak out. And they said, something bad's going to happen, something bad's going to happen. And they said, look, nothing bad's happening. And they tore it down. But then they said, no, in the, this idol goes down into the ground. Its roots are in the ground. And as long as that's there, some evil could befall the people. So then uh, the narration mentions that Abu Sufyan dug up the ground and dug out the roots, the foundations of that temple and that idol. He dug it out and he showed the people that here it is. Here's the foundation of it. It's nothing. And that's when the people relax and they calm down. But... What they used to do with idols was they would surround the idol with like gold and money and jewelry and all these offerings to the idol. When all of that was recovered, they said, what do we do with all of this? And look at the justice of the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ said, Urwa bin Mas'ud, whom all of you murdered, when he first became Muslim and he told you about Islam and you murdered him, all this money should be given to his family as reparations for having murdered him. And all that money. The Prophet ﷺ didn't take that money for himself. He didn't say, send it on over to Medina. The Prophet ﷺ said, take care of his family. And make reparations to his family for having done what you did to him. 
And, you know, something very beautiful. I talked about how, you know, community is about compassion. Community is about camaraderie. Community is about company and, and, and um, you know, spending time together. And the prophet, the narration, uh, the Sahaba who came from, this is found in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad, in the book of Abu Dawood, in the book of Ibn Majah, the people from Ta'if, the people of Thaqif, when they came to Medina and they became Muslim, they talk about how the Prophet ﷺ used to spend time with them. So he said all day long, you know, he would spend day, we, we would pray with him, he would teach us, we would ask him questions, we would have conversations with him. But he said when nighttime would occur and we would have dinner and we would pray Isha and everybody would kind of go back home. And the Prophet ﷺ would initially go home for a little bit. But then we were kind of sitting around in the masjid. We're travelers. So you know when you're travelers, you kind of stay up a little late. You're all camping out together in the same spot. So we would just be up kind of talking amongst each other. He said the Prophet ﷺ would come out a little while later after Isha. And he would come and he would talk to us. And the Prophet ﷺ was, had such a tight schedule that he wouldn't have enough time to sit down with us. So he would just kind of stand there and talk to us. How are you guys doing? How's your night? And he would talk to us. But he said he would get so much into the conversation with us that he would just stand there and he would kind of lean on this leg and then he would lean on, on the over leg. Like he, he wouldn't sit down because he didn't want to be there for hours. But then he wouldn't like leave either because he actually enjoyed their company and he wanted to spend time with them. So he would just move from leg to leg, leaning on one leg to another. And he said, what did he used to talk about? They said that he used to talk to us about La Ansa wa kunna musadhafina mustadhalina bi Makkah. He used to talk about the old days of Makkah. I still remember when we used to be oppressed in Makkah and we used to be tortured in Makkah and people were trying to kill us in Makkah and this happened and that happened and this happened and that happened and he used to tell us all the old stories. He used to share stories with us. That's the other thing, sharing experiences, sharing stories. Look how intuitive the community building of the Prophet ﷺ is. Spend time with us. Share stories with us. And then, he says, they say that one day, he came out really late. Like he usually used to go home after Isha and then come back like 45 minutes later or something. He came back like an hour and a half later. And we asked him, laylata, ya Rasulullah. He said, we've been expecting you. It was always like an unannounced visit, but we knew that he was going to be coming eventually. So they said that, you know, we missed you. You came late tonight. And he said that, I was, I was reading my portion of the Qur'an, and I did not finish reading my portion of the Qur'an today, so I wanted to finish it before I came to hang out with you guys. And you see the dedication of the Prophet ﷺ, like the balance that he had in his life. And how it's not easy. He had to run the community, he had to take care of his family, he had to read his own Qur'an, but he still made sure that he made time to hang out with his guests. And this is the balance and the beauty of the lifestyle of the Prophet ﷺ. So this is a really remarkable story about when the people of Ta'if, when the dua of the Prophet ﷺ was accepted, and the people of Ta'if finally came and they accepted Islam, and there's so many beautiful um, stories that are mentioned here. 
um, and so many profound lessons that are mentioned here, we pray uh, and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to allow us to practice everything that we've said and heard, and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to grant us the ability to build a community like the community of the Prophet mm-hmm. to have a sense of compassion in bringing humanity together. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always make us a means of bringing people closer to Him, and never allow us to be the reason why people go away from Him. Amin ya Rabbil Alameen. Jazakumullah khairan. Subhanallah bihamdihi, subhanakallah bihamdik.